This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I'm pretty sure you know it, but if you don't, it's Mother's Day this weekend. Uh, you guys, but I always found this one sort of a head scratcher. I'm not sure what to give my mom other than maybe flowers or what we get. A break. Uh, yeah, my mom didn't like cigars, and she called golf clubs <laughs> sticks, so those are both out. Uh, so uh, behaving for at least 24 hours all seem to be welcome, though often nearly impossible. A card when you're younger, flowers when you're older. Very simple. <laughs> wow, there you go. <laughs> Glad to know your mom didn't like cigars, Ron. <laughs> um, hey, did you, speaking of moms, did you guys know there's a professional football player's mother's association? Well, there is. It's more commonly known as NFL Moms. And Michelle Green, who was the mother of former NFL star Bryant McKinney, remember him, offensive lineman, sure. is its president. Not sure about anything more than that, Ron, are you? Uh, well, I went and checked their website after you enlightened me, uh, as you often do on many subjects. Always, and always do. You do. And I can't say that I know a hell of a lot, but uh, they have a rock and purple color scheme on their website with a with a purple helmet, and they're having a big charitable event for some charity work they do in Atlanta in July, so... Uh, they got a board of directors of a lot of moms on there, and that's any collection of moms is pretty good. Careful with that purple helmet comment there. <laughs> <laughs> go by what I I go by what I see, as Coach Parcells. <laughs> getting deeper and deeper into this. Well, one thing I am sure of is that we have three sons of mothers today, including former Hall of Fame voted Nick Canepa of the San Diego Union Tribune, Baltimore Ravers beat writer Jameson Hensley of ESPN.com, and Hall of Fame voter Mike Chappell of Fox 59 and CBS 4 in Indianapolis for his take on the best Colts not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And Goose, just a guess. But I'm guessing Mike has Edron James on that list and probably first on that list. Yeah, I think the list is, is a long one, really, because you're covering two cities, Baltimore and Indy. You know, Alan Amici, Bobby Boyd, Big Daddy Lipscomb on the Baltimore area. Of course, James, Robert Mathis, and Reggie Wayne in Annapolis area. This, this should be an interesting discussion. And Alan Amici, Ron. Alan Amici, your guy. The horse. The horse. Love horse. Man loved opera. <laughs> Little known fact. Well, we've got a lot to get to, and you know what? We've got plenty of time to get there. But first, yeah, first, we're going to commercial. When we return, we're going to break down the whole Jason Witten Antonio Gates debate. Yes, we are on his, the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I think it's a pretty safe guess that most people by now have seen photos of Tom Brady and his wife at this week's Met Gala in New York City. And I'll be honest, when I first saw them, my first reaction was, well, I guess losing the Super Bowl wasn't the worst thing that happened to Tom Brady this year. And then my second was, where's the rodeo? Ron, how do you explain this? Well, it just goes to show you that sometimes spending more time with your family isn't quite what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> I saw someone run a caption contest that I thought was pretty good and, and shouldn't be wasted. So, knowing a good line when we steal one, um, we're going to run the same contest, which is this, guys. Fill in the blank here. When I first saw Tom Brady's outfit for the Met Gala, I thought, 
What, Goose? Well, I didn't see his outfit. The Brady's and the Met Gala did not make the Dallas Morning News Society page. And frankly, football fans down here are more concerned with Dak Prescott than Tom Brady. <laughs> what? What kind of answer is that? <laughs> That's a Dallas answer. That's a Dallas answer. <laughs> okay, Ron, when you first saw Tom Brady's outfit for the Met Gala, which I hope you did. I did. Uh, you thought what? Table for two, sir? <laughs> he looks like he should be behind the counter somewhere holding menus. Ridiculous. <laughs> or or Vegas is a magician or well, something. It could have been a magician at Vegas. So, yeah, exactly yeah. right. Man, that you know, was I, one bad-looking jacket. Oh, you know what? I, th- I thought... He, he needs to get back to football is what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, good luck getting that jacket through security at Foxborough, Tom. Or maybe through Goose's front door. I don't think it's going there either. Now, on to a story we touched on a week ago, and that's Jason Witten's retirement. Uh, the former Dallas Stars going on to Monday Night Football. Well, I'd say no, probably, uh, certainly, going into the Hall of Fame. In fact, one voter this week told me he thought he was a, you're going to love this, guys, first ballot choice. Sure. Because, Absolutely. Well, because that's what everyone says these days when you want to get someone's attention. And I, I don't think he's a first ballot choice, and I don't think you guys do either, mostly because there's a better tight end out there who could be in the same class, and that's Antonio Gates. Now, he didn't have as many catches as Witten, and he missed a lot more games. But look at the TDs, the scores. I mean, he had almost twice as many. He had 114 to 68. In fact, he's sixth all time ahead of even Tony Gonzalez. And everyone ahead of him on the touchdowns list is in Canton. He's also a member of the 2000s All-Decade team where Witten is not. So, Goose, who do you have here? Do you have Gates or Witten, and, and why? That's a good debate. Uh, Gates, of course, holds the record for touchdowns, but Witten holds some pretty impressive records himself. His 110 catches in a single season are a record for the position, as are his 18 catches in a single game. Only three players in NFL history caught more passes than Witten. That's impressive. And more importantly, he was there every single Sunday. He didn't miss a start, much less a game, in his final 14 seasons. And like Ron says, the most important part of ability is availability. So he holds records from games played, starts at the position, and I think length and volume of his greatness have to be factored in. I think it's a toss-up. Whoa. Hmm. Ron? Uh, not sure I'd view it that way. Uh, I think it's Gates by a long shot. Look, he had, as you pointed out, he had 68 touchdowns in 15 years. Rob Gronkowski has 78 in eight years, and he was limping through half of those. Uh, look, the guys, he was not as Tony Gonzalez, he was not Antonio Gates, and he's not Gronk. Uh, what he is is a great guy, a great teammate, a very good player who, as Goose points out, you could count on being there every day, unlike some guys. Uh, but the hall, of, the doors to the Hall of Fame just seem to be opening wider and wider and wider mm-hmm. uh, to in my, guys who, in my mind, belong in the Hall of Very Good. Uh, if there's one play to make and you need to score, you want to throw it to Antonio Gates, Rob Gronkowski, Tony Gonzalez, or Jason Witten. Who are you throwing to? Yeah. So, Ron, let me ask you this. Yeah. Do you think he's getting in the Hall of Fame? I think Probably. He- Probably. Well, first off, with any luck at all, the Goose Man will survive until he until he pops up there, and that'll save him right there. Because who who makes better presentations than the Goose? Uh, so he's got that going for him. In addition to uh, uh, some pretty good numbers, uh, no question about that. Uh, and I think his affable personality will come across on TV, and that's probably going to yeah. help him. People will like him. Yeah. Well, we, we first time I've ever heard somebody say first time I've ever heard somebody say the third most catches in history 
are pretty good numbers. Pretty good numbers. Pretty good numbers. Hey, <laughs> hey, just remember what I always said in that room one day uh, about numbers. Wes Welger on pace to catch 600 balls. Who cares? My Aunt Louise can catch balls in the way they're playing now. Come on. You know what? You know what Gates is 114 touchdowns and Witten 68 touchdowns accounted for? Not a single ring. Well, there you go. There you <laughs> That's go. right. There you go. A man got Puts to be judged good... by his jewelry, as somebody once said. <laughs> Puts him in good company with Randy Moss and Terrell Owens. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, what uh, I think well, is going to happen? I think they're going to cancel each other out. That could happen. Both come up together in 23. You're going to have strong arguments both sides. Both sides are going to have voting blocks. And I think we're going to have a situation at tight end like we had at wide receiver when we had Carter, Reed, and Brown all sitting in the room. I think they could both cancel each other out and keep them both out of uh, first ballot contention. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, I could easily hey, hey, see that happen. Hey, hey Goose, um, talking about Gates, I saw someone say that he changed the position because he spawned a new generation of tight ends with different skill sets. Uh, excuse me, but I thought that was another Chargers tight end, and I'm talking about Kellen Winslow. Well, excuse me, I thought it was John Mackey. He introduced the seam route position at you know at the pro level in 1960. He made the tight end a downfield threat. That's what revolutionized the position. He put the tight end into a playmaking capacity in the passing game. That's what changed the game and the identity of the position. If you're talking about changing the game, look no further than John Mackey. There you go. How about Pete Restoff? He invented the damn position. I mean, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just everybody's changing the game. You know, everybody is above, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, look, Jason Witten and, and Gates, too, uh, caught all those balls because they didn't have to play tight end most of the time, if at all, as right. the position right. was originally designed to be played. Right. right. So judge them as wide receivers, and then where do you put them? Well, speaking of tight ends and not wide receivers, Ron, but speaking of tight ends, our Rick Allison wrote about one this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, touting him for Hall of Fame recognition. And it's not Antonio Gates, and it's not Jason Witten. So, Goose, who is it? Jimmy Giles was a generational-type tight end. His one problem, he played in the wrong generation. He arrived in the NFL in 1977 when his position demanded a blocker first, a receiver second. Little did he know that his position would spin off in another direction. The game was evolving, and tight ends become, became more important in the 1980s and going forward because of what they could do down the field as receivers rather than along the line of scrimmage as blockers. And the impact Giles had on the Buccaneers and on his position have been forgotten. He's been eligible for the Hall for 24 years, but his career has never come up in discussion. Never been a semifinalist, much less a finalist. He's now in his final year of modern-era eligibility for Canton, and his career certainly deserves discussion. He played 13 seasons and went to four Pro Bowls, catching 350 passes for 5,000 yards and 41 touchdowns. Those numbers pale in comparison to the Rob Gronkowski's and Travis Kelsey's of today's NFL, but that's not what he was asked to do at his position in 1977. Inside of two seasons after the Bucks acquired Giles in a trade, Ricky Bell became a top-10 rusher with 1,200 yards, and the run-first Bucks were playing in the 1979 NFC title game. Five years later, again behind the blocking of Giles, James Wilder became the first running back to carry the ball 400 times in a single season. But Giles thought he'd be measured against the game's great blocking tight ends, the John Mackey's, Mike Ditka's, and Ron Kramer's of the 1960s. Instead, his skills were being overshadowed by the spectacular receiving teams being put up by Kellen Winslow, Ozzie Newsom, and Todd Christensen in the 1980s. But what Giles lacked in quantity, 
he made up for it in quality. In his first three Pro Bowl seasons, he averaged 18 yards a catch in 1980 and 17 yards in both 1981 and 82. He could run the seam route and then outrun the defenders after the catch. He caught an 89-yard touchdown pass against Chicago in 81, an 80-yarder against Dallas in 82, and a 75-yarder against the Cowboys in the 81 playoffs. He also caught TD pass of 66 yards against both Detroit in 79 and Denver in his final season in 1989. Quality matters. Jealous deserves to have his career discussed, but his candidacy is running out of time. Well, it's not going to be difficult for us to go to commercial, guys. We're going right now. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. There are five quarterbacks taken in the first round of this year's draft, and you know what? The fifth might be the most intriguing. Maybe, Ron, that's why Tom Brady said he'd plead the fifth. What do you think? <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I try not to the, think about Tom Brady. <laughs> what makes the fifth quarterback so intriguing? Is that A, it was former husband Trevor Lamar Jackson of Louisville, and B, he was chosen by the Baltimore Ravens, who already have a quarterback in Joe Flacco. So what does that mean for Joe Flacco and the Ravens? ESPN.com's Jamison Hensley is here to tell us. And Jamison, if you take a quarterback in the first round, that generally means he plays within a year, unless, of course, you have someone like Brett Favre ahead of you. So... How should Joe Flacco read the situation, and how do you read it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Joe Flacco should read it as they haven't been happy with his play recently, so they have invested a first-round pick in a quarterback. But I do feel like this is a situation that's unlike a lot of first-round quarterback situations in recent years. And the reason I say that is because the Ravens made a concerted effort to trade and get into back into the first round to get Lamar Jackson for a reason. And uh, they even talked about it after the draft. Uh, because first-round picks, you can get that fifth-year option. So you can, get them, you can get Lamar Jackson for five years, where if you waited in the second round or later, it was only four years. And I feel that they know that Lamar Jackson, at least as a starting quarterback, is not going to be ready for a year, possibly two years. Um, and so that's why that, that fifth-year option was so important. Uh, I do feel that Lamar Jackson will get on the field this year. I think they have a lot of specialty packages. And when the offensive coordinator, Marty Mortywick, was in Philadelphia, he had a situation where Dominic McNabb was the starter and Michael Vick was the backup. And in 2009, he had Vick on the field for an average of five plays per game, uh, just as, call, uh, as a change-up. Uh, to what they were showing a lot of defenses. I think that is a similar formula as how this year will go. Well, I was going to ask you about that because I know that Hall of Fame general manager Bill Polian has said he envisioned Jackson as a wide receiver, and then others say, well, you know, we could play him almost anywhere, which is basically what you're saying. Um, could you see the Ravens using him like, let's say, or Cordell Stewart really playing a variety of positions, not just quarterback in the Wildcat or something, just a variety of positions. Uh, honestly, I don't see him as a wide receiver because he's even acknowledged he can't catch the ball very well. Uh, what I could see them do um, is have maybe even Joe Flacco and him on the field at the same time, uh, and you don't know who's lining up under center. You don't know who's going to end up with the ball. Uh, you know, they could do some reverses and have Jackson be more of a runner. Uh, I, I think they're just going to use it because honestly, Lamar Jackson with that four three speed and his ability to throw the ball deep, he is the most explosive playmaker they have on offense. I mean, that's just it's plain and simple. But 
to have him as a starting quarterback, having him every down, uh, his inconsistency, I just don't think they're ready to go that direction. But I think they like him as kind of that special weapon, not as just putting him in as a wide receiver or just simply as a running back, uh, but as almost putting him in kind of like a wildcat situation. Uh, or, again, like I said, putting him on the field with Joe Flacco. And, you, and when you have Joe Flacco and Lamar Jackson in the huddle at the same time, defenses don't know who's going to be lining up their center. So right. I think it puts a lot of uncertainty uh, and probably actually a lot more unpredictability uh, that this Ravens have had, offense has had in many, many years. Uh, Jameson, Tor Aikman has said that the most valuable asset a quarterback can have is accuracy. Now, Jackson wasn't a high-percentage passer at Louisville, yet John Harbaugh said he was impressed with his accuracy last week at the minicamp. Were you? <laughs> uh, honestly, no. Uh, and I think that's more of John Harbaugh <laughs> trying to pump up his rookie after the first couple of practices. Because there were times uh, when, especially on the out routes, outside the numbers, um, he was overthrowing receivers. Um, there were times when uh, he was throwing the ball deep. He would show some nice touch. There were other times where the ball fluttered. Um, I mean, not Billy Kilmer style, but still, it, it fluttered a little bit. Um, so it, I, I think what they have to do, um, and this was just their first time at rookie minicamp getting him into kind of the program, but I think what they have to do is you can see as far as his footwork, um, when he steps into throws, uh, his plant leg, his left leg, uh, doesn't really bend that much. Uh, so I think mechanically they can do some things to get his accuracy a little bit better. Uh, but believe me, I, the last time the Ravens drafted a quarterback who, where accuracy was a big problem, it was Kyle Bowler in 2003. And I, I don't have to tell you how that, that ended up. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan Billick is no longer a coach because of that. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I, I do understand you really can't coach accuracy, but I think they feel there are things under with Mark Jackson mechanics that they can improve that they can at least make him a more accurate quarterback. Okay, I'm curious. Do you think this was an Ozzie Newsome gut pick, and could this be a legacy pick? Oh, I do. I feel like this is is kind of a legacy pick, just in the fact that Lamar Jackson will end up as Ozzie Newsome's final first round pick, and I think it's very important for him uh, to leave the franchise in good hands. And he's not leaving the franchise as so to speak. He still is going to be in the building. Uh, he's going to give his input, but he is not going to be the general manager. He's not going to have the final say uh, in, in personnel decisions. And I feel that he knows how Joe Flacco has struggled over the past few years. They know Joe Flacco's contract, where they can get out of it maybe next year or the year after that. And so I think he was saying, you know what? It might not be next year. It, you know, it might not be this year. It might not be next year. Lamar Jackson takes over starter, but eventually he has given the franchise their next. Yeah, quarterback of the future. Now, obviously, his style is completely different from from Flacco's. Flacco's a pocket passer, and Jackson seems to make the bulk of his great plays on the run. Um, so, how does he fit in to an offense that's basically been built for Flacco, and not for a guy who uh, can make a lot of plays with his legs? Yeah, there's going to be a transition where, and I think that you know the Ravens have seen the trends in in, in the NFL with these read option quarterbacks uh, having that success. And I think they feel like not only do they have to change quarterbacks, but they almost have to change their style a little bit to kind of catch up to the successful teams in the NFL. So I do feel that they, they really feel that not only do they have to transition at quarterback, 
they have to transition as far as an offensive system as well. And, I, and it, they're not going to try to force Lamar Jackson to play Joe Flacco's offense. They, they will put him in a situation to succeed. And I really do think it, it's, they're going to be having two different offenses uh, because that's just how these quarterbacks are successful. So it, it's a challenge, uh, but I think that's why if you see Jackson get on the field at any point this year, uh, it's going to be a, a totally different look uh, as far as offense uh, going forward. How important do you think uh, James Urban, who was Vic's position coach of Philadelphia, will be to helping the development of Jackson and also uh, in in shifting the offense in the ways you're talking about? Oh, he's a, he's a big part. And it, and it almost makes me feel that this was kind of in the plans for a long while of them Thinking they could possibly get Lamar Jackson uh, because James Urban was the you know just the quarter, he was the quarterback coach with Morning Morning Wig back in uh, when they had Michael Vick back in 2009 and from what I've been told Urban was one of Lamar Jackson's biggest supporters uh, and uh, I think at the combine uh, he went up to uh, Lamar Jackson and said told him how much he reminds him of Michael Vick and uh, I think that's a huge part because. The Ravens have gone years where they haven't had a quarterback coach, and I think they feel felt this year, knowing that they were going to have to draft a younger quarterback, it was important to have a quarterback coach devoted just to help them as far as drills, mechanics, film work, things like that. And uh, I think I think his addition uh, was possibly the first step towards the Ravens ending up with Lamar Jackson. You know. Jameis said, I have to laugh when you said, uh, you know, the, the Ravens are trying to catch up with the rest of the pack. And I'll tell you how to catch up with the rest of the pack. You don't draft Lamar Jackson. You trade for Tom Brady, for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, one other question for you here on, on just on the draft in general. You know, when the Ravens were sitting on the board at 16, are you surprised that they passed on a chance to take one of the two wide receivers there? Not Honestly, I just felt that when they went after – uh, Michael Crabtree, John Brown, and then they were hoping to get Des Bryant. Then they then they eventually signed Willie Sneed right before the draft. That told me that they weren't high on this wide receiver group. That they kind of felt a lot of these guys were bunched together. Uh, so I don't think wide receiver was in play at 16. I think the guy at number 16, which I was surprised they passed on, was safety Derwin James. And uh, he reminds me kind of the old school, like an Ed Reed. Uh, 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 an alpha male leader that this team has really lacked uh, since they lost Ray Lewis and Ed, and and, and I, I was I was just very surprised. I'm wondering if they're going to end up regretting not taking Derwin James uh, at that spot, where I think the wide receiver was going to come into play a little bit was when they traded back to 22. I think that was a high consideration to stay at 22 and take DJ Moore from Maryland. But then when they went to 25, I honestly think they they, 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 they were looking at Hayden Hurst as, as a possibility. But my gut says if D.J. Moore was there at 25, that would have been their selection. And since he was selected by Carolina right before, I think they went with Hayden Hurst. And not, not to say Hayden Hurst can't be a, a, an impact player for them this year because I think pass-catching tight end was their biggest need on the team after losing Ben Watson and not be able to bring in an Eric Ebron or anybody like that. Uh, but I think I think DJ Moore was really under consideration when they were at 22 and 25. Uh, but 
the, the biggest thing for me, I think, was they'll, they'll eventually try to say, should they have stayed at 16, it would have been for Derwin James. Oh, okay. Well, Jameson, thanks so much for the time. we got to run here, but uh, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you this summer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, believe me, it's, it's, uh, the preseason has got a lot more interesting in Baltimore. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jameson. That was Jameson Hensley of ESPN.com. Up next, it's former Hall of Fame voter Nick Canepa to give us a lowdown on Antonio Gates. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there's been a lot of written and said lately about Jason Witten, and rightly so, because he retired last week, but not all that much about another tight end. And that's former Chargers star Antonio Gates, who was released by the team last week. So we thought we'd change that by inviting a former Hall of Fame voter... Frequent guest of this show and friend of all of us, that be columnist Nick Canepa of the San Diego Union Tribune, to give us his thoughts on someone he covered and who undoubtedly is going to Canton. And Nick, I know you're in Las Vegas. First question here: What are the odds a that Antonio Gates makes it to Canton as a first ballot choice, and b that you make it to a Golden Knights hockey game? Well, the chances of him going into the Hall of Fame are much better than me going to a hockey game. Uh, that's, that's for absolutely certain. The first ballot thing is always tricky with me um, because, you know, it's bad enough people going around saying, well, this guy's a Hall of Famer. Well, you've never been in the room. You don't know how hard it is. Yeah. These guys just toss around. He's a Hall of Famer, you know, like, like nothing. But you know, Antonio Gates is a Hall of Fame player. Uh, okay. He scored more touchdowns than any Hall of, than any tight end in history. Um, and and he was at his peak, and and that was probably, I don't know, probably about a five- or six-year span. It's hard to say exactly, but he, uh, during that span, I never saw anybody better. He was he was a magnificent player. Okay, Nikki, what was so special about this guy other than the numbers? Well, as you guys know, he, was a, he, he came from a basketball background, and, and matter of fact, didn't play football in, in college. He was a, at Kent. He was a second team All American basketball player. And, and he just kind of transformed the position. I mean, we talk about Kellen Winslow, uh, uh, and, and he did. And, but Gates was different than all of them because of the way he used his body. And, and, uh, he couldn't, uh, honestly, there were games where he absolutely couldn't be covered. They tried everything. They they double him. They they put they put a corner on him. It it didn't matter. He he got open, and it was uncanny. Uh, it was just one of the one of the greatest natural things I've ever seen. He was just a natural football player who didn't play football in college. Well, Nick, I, I I hear you say that he changed the position. I saw somebody write that this week, and they said he changed the position because of how people looked at tight ends. But you know something I told these guys? I, I thought Kellen Winslow did that. Not Antonio Gates, Kellen Winslow. Well, he did. Uh, you know, there's no doubt. 
you know, I think we could go down with the all the way back from from from. Um, I'm getting this right. It wasn't it wasn't it was the, the tight end on Green Bay? Was that who was that? That was uh, back in the Ron, Cr- Ron Kramer. Kramer. Yeah, Kramer. He was a tremendous tight end. He changed the position. Then Mackey changed the position. And then Winslow took it to another level altogether. And we've had a lot of really good tight ends. <laughs> um, you know, it's hard to compare Gates. I, well, I can't compare Gates with any of them because nobody played the position the way he played it because he was so unusual. Um, I, I know, and I think I think Witten was a terrific tight end. But I'll tell you one thing right now: he wasn't in twenty of Gates. And if they hold a draft today, and those two guys were in the draft, I would imagine that Dallas wouldn't take Jason Witten. Well, only one of those guys was drafted. <laughs> Goose man, bring in the bring in the zing. Zing. Okay. zing. okay, Nick. Nick, if you I had to pick one tight end, now. if you had to pick one tight end for your team, who would you take? Kellen Winslow or former Spartan Antonio Gates? Well, he was so good when he was a Spartan. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I say about Antonio Gates when he was a Spartan, he didn't get in any trouble. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. There you go. Uh, so what do you say? Gates Winslow. Gates Winslow. You know, that's that's a, such a such a interesting question because it, it was it was such a different you know, I, Clark Clark was there during the year Coriel days and, and I granted the tail end of them, but I didn't ask Clark. But, I asked you. <laughs> no, I would think that Gates would succeed, and I think Winslow would succeed. I would probably, God, I, I think I would probably go with Winslow, but it would be really close. And if and if Gates hadn't been hurt, uh, didn't have the bad feet, um, I would have probably gone with Gates. Uh, if, really? And, wow. and, and, you know, Winslow had his injuries, too. He broke his leg and missed basically an entire season. Uh, you would go with Gates or you'd go with Winslow? You've said both. You I like think Peter I King. Probably go with, I think I'd probably go with Winslow by a nose. Winslow. Okay. But it would be, it would be, they'd be leaning at the tape, let's put it that way. <laughs> but you'd take, you'd take Todd Christian ahead of both of them, right? Uh, no. But Todd <laughs> okay, Christian Nick. was a great pass-catching tight end. He was. Okay, along those lines, Nick, who's the best tight end you've ever seen? You know, I think it might be Gronkowski. But you know, the once you know they, what they talk about in sample sizes today, he's right. a lot like he's a lot like Sayers. You know, um, you know how much how much more is he going to play, and how much has he played? Um, I think physically he may be the he may be the best I've seen, and I, it's almost you know I, I kind of don't like it when people start. Well, this guy reminds me of this guy. Well. You know, I, I, especially with running backs and, and receivers and, and tight ends or receivers, but when they start comparing, well, this guy reminds me of this guy. Well, no, he really doesn't. I, the truly great players don't remind you of anybody. They're, they're unique. Who does Ron remind you of? I think every great running back is – some kid coming out today say, well, that guy reminds me of Gale Sayers. No, no, he doesn't. No, Not if you saw Gail Sears, you're right. <laughs> no, no. Right. No, that's right. Who does Ron remind you of, Nick? Ron? Yes. He reminds me of somebody who, who uh, 
never picked me up when he said he was going to. <laughs> you went to no, the wrong hotel. Wrong. Don't blame me. <laughs> uh, you know, Nikki, uh, we all know, because we've all been around long enough, uh, how drastically the position itself has changed. You know, and I think of, of uh, Mackey or Bavaro or Ron Kramer, a bunch of other guys, Russ Francis. Um, you know, they were playing a different position than these guys are playing. Um, right. I mean, and, and, and Coriel, so to me, it's, Coriel, it's, Coriel and Zampezi, and probably we could probably go more with Zampezi, was the first guy who split the tight end out. Zampezi split Winslow out. Right. And that was that was uh, the dawn of a, of a whole new day for for tight ends. And, yeah, they came, you know, came wide receivers. You know, a lot of guys are not anymore, not not good blockers anymore either. Right. You know, right. Uh, and you know, I think you got to take that into consideration a little bit. Right. Well, that's what I think makes it hard with with uh, Gates or with Witten. You know, how do you compare their their those guys, their game, and what they were asked to do and what they were able to do with uh, Bavaro, for example, who Parcells talks about asking him to block Reggie White one-on-one and it being an integral part of their game, and he did it. Uh, Varro says, I just, I just sort of got in the way. I didn't really block him. But, um, you know, how do you, how do you judge those two kinds of tight ends under the same, and call it the same position? Exactly. I mean, and in Gates' case, I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm a big touchdown guy, and the guy was great. It was Great in the in the red zone. Just to, he, he I mean, he just got open and caught touchdown passes. He what he catch on those fourteen, I, right. I, something like that. I mean, it a lot more than Witten did. Right. I'll say that almost, much, but, uh, almost twice as many. I, I can't. I can't put the knock on the. Does on does does, does he play? Does Gates play this season? Does he have anything left in the tank? Well, I tell you, I I, I was. You know, I, I saw every game. Oh, I've seen. I imagine I've seen almost certainly over ninety nine percent of his games. And he, as far as I'm concerned, he was he was basically a shadow of what he was. I, he can't separate anymore. I, there were a few times last year where he did, but no, he's he's not the. You know, the the the, the shame of it is that he'll probably leave. And the Chargers will will treat him like he was cut in camp or something, like they do every great player they've ever had. So, um, no, he I can't believe he could still play. Is it just and the physical? I, is it just the injuries that have worn him out, or is he just lost yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, you know, God, what what is he? Thirty eight? Is he that old? Wow, thirty eight. Yeah, he's up there. I mean, yeah. yeah, he came in. He came in and he came in before Rivers did. What was he at? Uh, a 2002 or three guy? Great. I, I yeah. right around there. 2003, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, he's a great guy and a great player. And, and I, you know, I, I wish him the best, but I, I don't, I can't imagine him playing football again. I, I, that have, and he wasn't hurt last year. So, you know, that's, that's another way to look at it. So, hey, hey, Nikki, do you have a favorite Gates story or memory? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they, you know, Gates was like I like I said, a second team All American at uh, basketball player, and um, and Tony Gonzalez was a was a 
started for Cal in basketball. He was a fine basketball player, and, and they were getting ready to play Kansas City when Tony was there, and they asked Gates about about uh, you know Gonzalez's basketball career, and uh, Gates said Tony played basketball. They had the game plan for me. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick, how how would you feel if Gates signs with the Cowboys and starts here? I, I think it'd be tremendous. No, oh, I, I I wish him the best. I, I hope he I hope he comes back and has a, a tremendous time. I just can't see it happening. But well, but we do know that Lance always had to come here to get a Super Bowl ring. <laughs> Ouch! Well, Goose is after well, you tonight, Nicky. That that's true. That's. You know, that's why Lazadian and Tomlinson went to the Jets. So they could get the Super Bowl. <laughs> they come to Dallas. <laughs> uh, does, does Gates know that it's over, do you think? Or, or is he like you know, those players? I, I, and... you, know, you know how athletes are. Right. You know, he says he wants to play again. Now, you know, that's great for him to say. But who's to, know, who's to say that somewhere down the line here, a tight end will get hurt and they'll, they'll bring him in? You know, yeah, I don't know. probably will. Probably will happen. Nobody's jumped at the chance yet, but yeah. you know, there's a lot of things that could happen between now and September. Right. Hey, Maybe he and Des Bryant ought to go in a package. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't know. I I think he's a first team, a first ballot talent. But once again, in most cases. Nothing surprises me if, if a guy doesn't go in on the first ballot. So. I, I, I thought you were going to say, in most cases, I'll be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's, you know. Hey, when Mike Haynes didn't go on the first ballot, that did it for me. Exactly right, boy. Right. You are right, right about that. Hey, Nikki, that we got to run. we got to run, but thanks so much for the time, and, and good luck at the uh, blackjack table tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll be leaving here. I'll be leaving here on my knees. You have some problems. <laughs> you have a little trouble out there, Nikki. Give me a call. I got a couple guys to help you out. Yeah, we'll I know. You, you know a lot of guys. We'll get you out. <laughs> well, no matter what you did, it'll like it never happened. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. Okay. Thanks. That was from a Hall of Fame voter, Nick Canepa of the San Diego Union Tribune. Up next, Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost out of time, so Robert, let's hear it with that whistle. That's the Two Minute That means we're on to the Two Minute Drill, and I have it this week, so let's get going, guys. President Trump wants a debate with Colin Kaepernick and Kanye West. Why? TV ratings for Fox. Exactly. Reality ratings. If Kaepernick is involved, how can that be a standing offer? If it's from Donald Trump, it must be a standing offer. <laughs> I don't know if it's a standing offer, but I think everyone will be genuflecting at the idea. With jobless rates at their lowest in a decade, this is supposed to be the summer for jobs. So when does Colin Kaepernick get one? When the jobless rate hits 1%. Not this summer, not next summer, not any summer. <laughs> well, former Bucks quarterback Josh Freeman got a job in the CFL with the Alouettes. What do you think he does there? I think he rebuilds his stock. Two years, he gets another shot at the NFL. I think he gets yelled at by friend of the show, Mike Sherman. If Matt Ryan is the league's highest-paid player, what does that make Tom Brady? 
a quarterback who's lost three Super Bowls. Oh, jeez. A guy in an ugly <laughs> sports coat at the Met Gal looking like the maitre d'. <laughs> the Ravens took quarterback Lamar Jackson with the first-round draft choice. How nervous should Joe Flacco be? I'll scale up 1 to 10 with 10 being highest anxiety, a 10. I don't know if he's nervous, but Joe Cool is getting hot. What happens first? The Jets win another Super Bowl, or Tim Tebow is called up by the Mets? Forget Tebow. There's a better chance the Jets win a Stanley Cup before they win a Lombardi Trophy. (laughs) (laughs) I, I see the future as the Jets win another Super Bowl with Tim Tebow at quarterback. I like it. Tom Brady and Bob Kraft with this week's Met Gala in New York City. So when do we get invited? Huh, I, I didn't realize they were Mets fans. <laughs> yeah, and, and we can't even get invited to a Mets game at City Field. That's the end of the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the end of the first hour, but there's plenty more ahead, including a look at the Hall's Class of 2023 and the best Indianapolis Colts not in the Pro Football of Fame. So stay where you are. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. And Ronnie, I know it's early. Have a look at the calendar here. What are you doing Saturday, November 18th? Well, with any luck at all, I'll be sitting in a pleasant late fall day at Fenway Park watching my almost alma mater, Harvard, playing a game so big, all they have to do is call it the game. Not the big game, not the Super Bowl, just the game. Enough said. Yeah, that's a great idea because you know what? I just saw this the other day. It's the 135th meeting of Harvard-Yale, but it's the first time since 1912 that Harvard and Yale will be played anywhere Anywhere but the Yale Bowl or Harvard Stadium. So, Gooseman down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, you have any interest in flying him here for that one? Oh, come on. Come. I'll see a higher caliber of competition on Friday night at some Texas high schools, and I don't have to get on an airplane to see it. <laughs> oh, God. I'll take what that a as curmudgeon. a no. I'll take that as a no. <laughs> what an old curmudgeon. Wow, Come what a on. curmudgeon. God. Ron, I guess that's a that's no. That's a Harvard huh? word, curmudgeon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Ronnie, what, what's interesting about this game is it's the 50th anniversary of that 29-29 tie in 868 when Harvard somehow scored those 16 points in the final 42 seconds to tie unbeaten and heavily favored Yale and and produce the headline, the unforgettable headline, the Crimson and the Red, Harvard beat Yale 29-29. Exactly, and they got it right. Uh, although these days some idiot on the internet would be saying that they made a journalistic error. Now, the thing about that game, my old pal Pete Varney caught the two-point conversion from four-string quarterback Frank Champy to win the game. Yeah. And lo and behold, no surprise, one of my other friends was playing linebacker for Yale who got flagged for piling on, which to this day he denies he did because he missed the pile. My pal Andy Cole. Oh, wow. That was a great game. And Gooseman, you were in Michigan at the time. Could you feel the seismic tremors of that game there? I mean, it was a huge game. Last time the Ivy League was at any consequence was 1937 when Clint, Clint Frank won the Heisman at Yale. No. <laughs> 
seismic tremors. Oh, my God. Well, he but, needs to get out. He does. He needs to get around. Gooseman, let me tell you something. <laughs> this is how big this game was. One of the key players for Harvard in that game is a guy named Fritz Reed, who's passed away since he was offensive lineman, made a great play in that game. He once said of that game, it wasn't numinous. It was just a football game. Numinous. Has anyone in Texas ever even said the word numinous? No, I have any idea what it means, which I did not until I looked it up. I don't know what it means either, but I do know Spiritual. Come on, everybody knows it. You want the dark? Go to commercial. You're listening to the Talk of Faith Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I was in New Haven, Connecticut last week and noticed that the play Chicago is coming to the Schubert Theater there, which is not a big deal, except for this. In the role of Billy Flynn, who's the slick lawyer, of course, who happens to double as a lead actor, it's none other than former Titans running back Eddie George. And, and I know that this is nothing new. He played Billy Flynn, Flynn on Broadway in 2016, and he played it to rave reviews. Um, and also former players going into showbiz is nothing new. But professional athletes going on Broadway, well, that is. And the roll call, guys, is, is short. Uh, I looked it up, and I could find a couple guys. Paul Robeson's one who played football at Rutgers. He went on to appear in Showboat and Othello. And the other, of course, is surprise, surprise. Broadway Joe Namath, who lived up to his nickname by appearing on stage in the 1983 production of the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Uh, but that's about it. Ron, Ron, did you did you catch that one? The Kane Mutiny Court Martial? I don't think you got a Tony for that. <laughs> I, I, I can mention one other former player. Bo Eason, former Oilers safety and son of Tony Eason, whose show lasted, unfortunately for him, one week after he moved to New York. It happens, but don't blame Bo. Because Bo knows Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are, of course, plenty of former players that have gone into the movies and or TV. And I'm going to call on you two, Rick and Ron, to tap into what's left of those brain cells to give us your Hall of Fame of former pro players who went into showbiz. And Ron... I'll start with you. Who's numero uno on your list? Well, being a man of history, for me, it's uh, Woody Strode, who helped re-break the color line in the NFL with, uh, right after World War II, along with his uh, former college teammate, Kenny Washington, uh, both well past their prime. But then went on uh, to become a great actor who was nominated for the Golden Globe Award in Rick Goslin's favorite film of all time, Spartacus! <laughs> so, Gooseman, who played Draba, the Ethiopian gladiator who defeated Spartacus but refused to kill him? Woody Strode! And then he went and he killed the Roman military commander, if you remember, then they killed him, and that started the whole revolution. So, no Woody Stroud, no Spartacus, no Michigan State, no nothing. That was before my time, Ron. <laughs> Most things are. <laughs> well, guys, Gooseman? you know me, I'm, I'm partial defensive tackle, so I've got... Alex Karras in Blazing Saddles or Bubba Smith, Spartan, and Police Academy. Karras punching the horse was hilarious. That was one of the greats. That was one of the greats. I'll give you one of the greats, too. Brett Favre and There's Something About Mary. You know what? There's something about Brett Favre in that movie, too. Hey, uh, by the way, speaking of that movie, little known fact here, Brett Favre was not the first choice for that role. Drew Bledsoe, friend of the show, was. And Steve Young, friend of the show, was second. Did you know that, Ron? I did know that, and as I've told Bledsoe many times, just another case of checking out of a good play into a bad play. <laughs> <laughs> Goose, you have any more nominees? 
Yes, I do have a collective of nominations. In 1966, Detroit Lions for the role in Paper Lions. Hall of Famers Joe Schmidt, Dick LeBeau, Lem Barney. A cast of 45, I think, at that point. Wow, One of the great movies, football movies of all time. Great book. Great book. Yep, um, both good. I mentioned Brett Favre earlier, but there's another quarterback we should talk about, and not because he's in showbiz, but because he's about to make a gazillion dollars, and that's Aaron Rodgers from Green Bay. You guys saw that Matt Ryan just became the richest player uh, in the NFL at five years, $150 million, surpassing Jimmy Garoppolo, who became the richest player after Matt Stafford became the richest player. Ron, you, you get a trend here. I think you're going to have more on this later in the segment. But um, what, what, Goose, what's the impact of Ryan's contract going to be on Aaron Rodgers? Well, it sets a new ceiling for quarterbacks. You know, the next guy is going to blow through that, and that'll be Rodgers. He'll get a few shekels more than Ryan, a few shekels more in the guarantee, and then we got a, somebody who's going to try to break his mark, and Lord knows who that's going to be. Maybe Lamar Jackson. Well, good question here. As uh, Since you mentioned that, Goose, Ron, who's next to top Aaron Rodgers? Cam Newton, who's it going to be? That's what I'm thinking. Maybe Cam Newton. I don't know how many years he's got left. I didn't look it up, but uh, um, I'd say, you know, if you were looking at today's lengthy list of slappies, um, <laughs> many of whom are going to be rich slappies, which is a good thing to be, actually. You know, I would say Cam Newton is the guy who's uh, uh, probably chomping at the bit to get paid. Yeah, well, let me ask you this, guys. If, if you were Atlanta, would you give Ryan the five years, $150 million contract, Goose? You almost have to. If you don't have, if you don't have him, you got to go out looking again, and it's painful. If you don't have one, you have no chance. At least Ryan gives him a chance. Right. Well, uh, I will, I'm going to speak to that in a moment or two, uh, Clarky, because uh, okay. that's the prevailing theory. There's no question about that. That uh, you know, you don't have a chance to win a championship if you don't have yeah. one of these guys making stupid money. Right. Uh, it right. turns out that maybe that's not quite all that we think it is. Yeah, it just seems like, Ron, you know, it's, it's the next quarterback and the next quarterback and oh, the next yeah. quarterback. You know, it just, it's just like, doesn't make any difference what you did. I mean, how many Super Bowls has Matt Ryan won? No, you're right. It's like Elizabeth Taylor. Next husband, then the next husband, then the next husband. It never worked out. <laughs> the first time I've heard Matt Ryan and Elizabeth Taylor in the same sentence. <laughs> it just never worked out, you know? Now, yeah. having said that, he's made the four, fourth most money in the history of quarterbacks, over $220 million, So don't cry the blues for Tom Brady. Look at that jacket. He he, he has so much money, he can wear that jacket and still smile. I got to see that jacket. Oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. He's made a lot of money, Ron, but not as much as his wife. No, no, that's right. His money is just a tax problem for her. There's no question. <laughs> okay, I'd like to ask you more on this subject, but as I said, I think Ron is going to cover this week's installment of Borges of Bogus. So, Ronnie, let it rip, buddy. Well, guys, everyone wants to get paid in pro football, and no one gets paid better than starting quarterbacks. The theory behind this is, as Goose points out, you can't win a championship without a highly paid one. But is this actually true, or is it bogus? This comes to mind after the announcement of three almost incomprehensible contracts signed this offseason. Those of Jimmy Garoppolo, Kirk Cousins, and Matt Ryan. Garoppolo signed a five-year, $137.5 million deal with $74.1 million in guaranteed money, which averages out to over $10 million guaranteed for his seven starts. Bogus or brilliant? Cousins signed a fully guaranteed three-year deal with Minnesota worth $84 million, all guaranteed. Comes with a cap hit this year of $24 million. Bogus or brilliant? And then there's Matt Ryan. Just linked a five-year, $152 million deal with $100 million guaranteed and an average salary of $30 million. Again, bogus or brilliant? Between them, they're 4-7 and seven in the playoffs. 
Ryan was the leader of the biggest choke job in Super Bowl history, blowing a 25-point lead in less than 20 minutes. Grapple has only seven career starts, although admittedly he is 7-0. And Cousins is 26-30-1 and and as a starter, 0-1 in the playoffs. And need you be reminded, when he needed to beat the Giants in the final game of 2016 to get his team into the playoffs, he threw an interception that ended the game. And then there was this year's finale before the big contract. The Vikings were so impressed by the three picks he threw them that they said, let's back up the truck. Look, time will tell, but Mike Giannitti is a guy who knows more about math and the cap than I'll ever know. And he's hit upon an interesting stat on his website, SpotTrack.com. According to his figures, since the cap began in 1994, the average cap hit of a Super Bowl winning quarterback is 6.9% of the cap. The highest ever was in the cap's first year when Steve Young commanded 13.1% of the 49ers cap. And only four quarterbacks have ever won the Super Bowl when accounting for 11% or more of a team's cap. Young, Peyton Manning twice, Brady, and Eli Manning. Yet last year, 10 quarterbacks accounted for more than 11% of their team's cap, and 20 were paid more than the historic average of the Super Bowl winning quarterback, 6.9. Where do Garoppolo, Cousins, and Ryan sit? Garoppolo consumes 17.55 of the 49ers cap. Cousins is at 12.47, and Ryan, interestingly enough, saw his cap number go down by nearly $4 million this year. But in a year, it's going to jump to $22.8 million, which would be roughly 13% of this year's cap. If their quarterback begins commanding twice the average of a Super Bowl winner, how do the Falcons going forward pay Julio Jones or Mohamed Sanu or all those young guys they have on defense? If they can't do that, they become the Seahawks, whose slide has seemed to coincide almost exactly with the rising value of Russell Wilson's contract. Wilson's cap hit, according to uh, SportTrack, $23.78 million this year, 13.2% of Seattle's cap. What did it lead to? An exodus of the Legion of Boom Foundation and the beast mode offense that brought them to two Super Bowls. Of the top six quarterbacks in 2018, cap consumption, only one, Joe Flacco, ever reached the Super Bowl. How about Andrew Luck? He eats up 16.6% of the Colts' uh, cap, and he's 10-12 and 12 in his last three years, and his shoulder hurts. It's not bogus to suggest you need the quarterback, but it may be bogus to pay him as much as they are. All I know, Ron, is we're not getting paid quarterback money. Not sure when that's going to happen, but never say never, right? Okay, <laughs> never. <water> boy money. <laughs> up next, it's Colts reporter Mike Chappell. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, each week we've been making stops in pro football cities and in alphabetical order as we continue our best not in Canton series. And we're not stopping until we hit all 32 NFL cities and talk to Hall of Fame voters about the most glaring omissions from each of their towns. So our stop this week is one of our favorite towns. That's Indianapolis where we have Hall of Fame voter Mike Chappell, longtime beat writer covering the Colts for IndieSportsCentral.com. And, Mike, you're on with Clark, Rick, and Ron, and thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So, Mike, who's the best Colt not enshrined in Canada? Eligible. It was Billy Wise. It's, I think it's Edgar James. And you guys know it's been, he's been in the finals two years, and we'll see if we can get him in this year or next year. Before I launch into my questions, Mike, I got to ask you. Assuming my friend Clark has your resume right, you know I have been a long believer in double dipping. But how in the hell are you on Fox Fifty Nine and CBS Four at the same time? He's everywhere. They're sort of incestual sister brother sister act. So as bad as that sounds, they're sort of under the same umbrella. So it's. It, it, it's sort of two, two companies, but it's really a sort of one, so that's how. <laughs> I like it. He's two checks is better than one. 
He's not going to run. <laughs> <laughs> We've all believed in that. Uh, give me, if you could, the backstory of how uh, Edgarin left the Colts for the for the Cardinals in free agency, and if he had stayed in Indianapolis and won that Super Bowl the next year, would he already be in the Hall of Fame? Good point. He, he they, they didn't re-sign him uh, after '05. Bill Pullian sort of had the had the decision that. It's better to get rid of a running back a year too soon than a year too late. And he was just ready to move on. They brought in Joe Adai, who had a good career, but certainly not Edgar James. Like, had Edgar stayed here under a multi-year deal, won a Super Bowl, he probably, we wouldn't be having this discussion because he would have had two or three uh, excellent years. You know, he had some good years in Arizona, but not like what they had here. So another year or two in Indy, I think, would have pushed him over the top to where we're not having this should-he-be-in discussion as we are. Been a hang-up, Mike. What's been the hang-up, do you think? I, I just think nationally, Edron is viewed as a pretty good running back, not a great running back, and I, I disagree. I, I point out a couple of things. He's one of four running backs to have four 1,500-yard seasons, and the other three guys are in the Hall of Fame. He did two pre-injury, two after the injury. He's one of four players with, two, with at least four 2,000 uh, yards from scrimmage season, so I, I've always thought that the, 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 the benchmark is were, were you ever the best player at your position? And I would argue that Edgerman was the best player two or three, maybe four years. Uh, and I just thought the fact he came back from the D injury and, and did what he did, went to Arizona and had a solid career, and then he sort of hung around. But, you know, he, he's 13th all-time rushing. The only two ahead of him, none of the Hall of Famer, are still active, Adrian Peterson and Frank Gore and uh, to me, it's encouraging that Edgerin is sort of the the next running back in, in the in the list in, in the pipeline. I hope we get him in the next few years. But the problem we're running into, as you guys know, the next two or three years, there's some pretty serious first ballot guys coming up. You know, with with the Ed Reeds and the Peyton Manning, so that diminishes the spot, and it's just going to be it's going to be hard. But I just think it's deserving. Mike, I agree with you. You know, I, I spoke up for Edron James at the meeting this year, but boy, I got the feeling that he just has no traction. He's just not resonating well, with voters. I don't get it. I just don't get it. That's again. I just again. I watched him play throughout his career here, and he was just exceptional. He he really was. He reinvented himself after the after the serious knee injury. He, he wins the the first two rushing titles uh, his first two years. Would have won a third straight had he blown down blown out the knee. I just think that to some level, it's held against him that he played with Peyton Manning and, and, mm-hmm. and Reggie Wayne and Marvin Harris and all these players. And if you talk to Peyton, and I realize Peyton tries to get Edgerin in, but he says the key to that offense was Edgerin James and yeah. what he brought to the running game. And I just I, I hope that that people can sit back and, and see what he did for how long he did it. And, again, he, he wasn't just a good player. He was, he was a special player, and I hope one of these years he gets his due. If nothing else, I want to see Edgar's induction speech because it, it'll be epic. <laughs> <laughs> well, M- Mike, let me ask you about another special player, and that's Dwight Freeney. I mean, he retired this offseason and ranked 17th in NFL history in sacks. He has 125 and a half. Do you expect him to have any trouble when he becomes eligible in 2023? Well, I don't think he's a first ballot guy, and I love Dwight Freeney. Uh, I I go back to how long it took us to get Kevin Green in. Kevin Green's got 160 sacks, and you know I, you're talking sacks and forced fumbles and all that. And Dwight Greeny was a master and all that, but it took us so long to get Kevin Green in. And we're going to have a look at the list. 
Julius Peppers, DeMarcus Ware, Jared Allen, people like that. I think I think Freeney belongs. First ballot, I don't think so, but but I, I think Dwight Freeney, what he did with this team, he was. We, we were talking before this draft on on uh, uh, these guys maybe taking the pass rusher. They've missed that that type of pass rusher since Freeney and then Robert Mathis retired. So guys like that are rare, and I think Dwight Freeney was a rare bird that deserves. Ser- we need to get Dwight Freeney in the room so we can discuss his merits because I think he certainly deserves serious consideration. Okay, Mike, you mentioned Robert Mathis. He plays two fewer seasons than Freeney, had just three fewer sacks. He retired last year. He's eligible in 2022. First off, who is the more impactful player, Freeney or Mathis? And secondly, do you oh, have any expectations he could have some problems? Yeah, you're going to get me in trouble here because Robert Mathis is still around the team as a as a defensive coach. I I tell you what, I'll, I'll defer to John Turling to see which one of his his favorite sons he would want. I, I, I guess I would take, if, if you had a gun to my head, I, I would take Dwight Freeney and only a notch ahead, but like you said, Mathis had really more in less time. But I just think teams tended, and we're talking degrees here, I think teams tended to game plan more for Freeney than Mathis, but that's not a knock on Mathis at all. You know, he had 19 and a half that one year, and I still think he holds the league record for, for sacks off of a strip quarterback sacks. So I just think they're both unique players. Will they both get in? I don't think so. That's why I, I think Freeney's got a better chance. I, I think that the perception is nationally that he was the better pass rusher. Although, again, I watch these guys play for the bulk of their career on that fast track. And it's just what, it's whether, whether you like chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream because they were both really, really good. Well, uh, probably the one sure candidacy for Canton uh, – with the Indianapolis Colts is, is Adam Vinatieri, or is he? You know, he's a kicker. We all know what the history is there, but he only needs 58 points this season to become the all-time leading scorer. He's going to play. He's actually going to be the guy who plays until he's 115, like Brady said. Right. So, how do you see him? And uh, uh, do you think he's as much of a slam dunk as some people think? I, I really do, and it, it's you know, it's longevity is one thing. This is what his 23rd season or whatever. I think the, the Colts' entire draft class this year wasn't born when Vinatieri first played, which tells you how long he's been playing. <laughs> but like you said, you, you get and it took so long for us to get Mort Anderson in, but with Vinatieri, the difference is he's going to hold all the records on points, field goals, field goals attempted. But then you add you add the playoffs and the clutch kicks and all of that. I, I just think that, to, to me, first ballot, I would think so. I just think that with everything that he's done, we put so much emphasis on, on Super Bowls and clutch kicks and what did you do when it mattered. And one thing I was looking at, over the last five years, since he turned 40, he's 146 of 163 field goal attempts. That's 89.6% since he's 40. And he's 80% on 50-yarders. So I think, again, first ballot guys, to me, they need to check every box. Every box. And I don't know which one... And he's even thrown a couple passes in his career, so I don't know what box he doesn't check. So I would be surprised if he's not a guy that's not a first ballot with not a lot of discussion. Wow. Kicked the <laughs> first ballot. Um, he also had one of the most memorable kicks in NFL history, that one in the snow against Oakland. He said that's his, 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 that, that's his number one kick. Wow. The, the, yeah. the tuck game. That, that's the one in the blizzard to tie the game. 
Yeah, that's his that's number right. one kick uh, on his resume, no question. Went sideways, and, and, but it went through. That's right. <laughs> goes, a line drive in the box score. <laughs> you, you know, that extra point in Buffalo last year wasn't too bad either. <laughs> it's amazing. He misses like five field goals last year, and two of them are in that god-awful blizzard. Oh. But he hits that extra point. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah amazing. But, again, that's uh, what he does. And that's why I say when you do things that you're not supposed to over and over again, you know, first ballot, I think so. We'll see if a, if a special team or team. It's hard to get those guys in. Yeah. But I tell you, yeah. again, I don't, I don't know what box he doesn't check that people would question. Hey, Mike, one other question here. Um, only one franchise has sent two wide receivers to Canton from the same team, and that, of course, as you know, was the 70 Steelers. They had John Stallworth and Lynn Swan. With, with Marvin Harrison in, does Reggie Wayne become a long shot for Canton, and, and should he be? I, I hate to use the word long shot. People around Indy, they think it's a, it's a no-doubt slam dunk that he's going to make it, but he's 10th in receptions, he's 10th in, 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 in yards, but look at the people ahead of him that we're going to have to deal with, Larry Fitzgerald, Isaac Bruce, Tony Gonzalez, people like that. you got Andre Johnson. I'll, I'll take Reggie Wayne over Andre Johnson, Calvin Johnson, people like that. The, the one thing that people need to keep in mind about Reggie, and we always talk about on Selection Saturday is, what did you do in the playoffs? You know, how did you get there? He's won a Super Bowl. Reggie Wayne ranks number two all time in playoff receptions. He oh. ranks like fourth in playoff yards, and he's no, he's got like the second or third biggest single game in playoff history. So this guy did it when the games were really important. Mike Chapel, thanks so much for the time. And Bo, by the way, we'll see you tomorrow morning at Chaparros. You're buying, by the way. <laughs> I'll be there. You get, you, if, if, I'm, if I'm late, you guys go in order, and I'll, 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 I'll get you there later. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. That was Hall of Fame voter Mike Chappell. Up next, it's the suddenly crowded Hall of Fame class of 2023 candidates. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, uh, by the way, I forgot to mention in the first hour that Carolina's Cam Newton was also at the Met Gala. Didn't make quite the impression that Tom Brady did. Not sure anybody would, but I do think he made the wiser choice, Ron. Tux and bow tie. It might be, might be the only time I think I'd take Cam over top terrific. Cam dressed like an adult. The other guy dressed like he was the ringmaster at the circus. <laughs> I still can't get over that, Jack. Uh, um, also, I want to mention, by the way, I, I saw this a couple of days ago. I want to send out congratulations to uh, Hall of Fame coach in front of the show, Tony Dungy. Uh, he's just been chosen for the Tampa Bay Ring of Honor. I hope he doesn't consult Tom Brady for his attire that night. But uh, I'd say it's about time. I mean, he'll be inducted at halftime of the September 24th game between the Bucks and Steelers and Goose. Given Tony's background, that really seems appropriate. Yeah, Tony won a Super Bowl as a player with the Steelers, then as a coach, left the team behind in Tampa for Gruden and the Bucks to win a Super Bowl. If your franchise was resurrected from the dead by a Hall of Fame coach, which Dungy did with the Bucks in the 1990s, you ought to put that coach in your Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I agree. My only question, guys, is 
what took him so long to get around to it? Well, Clark, do the math. It's the 17th anniversary of it, the day he was fired by the Glazers, and we all know how oh, significant 17th anniversaries are. I think sure, that's where I, I forgot I, that. I think you get a copper pot or something. But seriously, <laughs> it's the Glazers. Somebody had to remind him that he wasn't in their ring of honor. <laughs> had to wake him up. I think the problem is it took them all those years to put Gruden in last year. They couldn't put Dungey until they put Gruden in. They finally put Gruden in. Doors open for Dungey. Huh. Anyway, congratulations again to Tony Dungey and... Eh, probably enough already, the fashion police. Um, we spent part of the first hour of this program talking about tight ends Jason Witten and Antonio Gates. And, Goose, I forgot to mention that there was a pretty heartfelt letter that I saw. I don't know if that was on Twitter or someplace uh, that Tony Romer wrote to and about Jason Witten, summing it up by saying his last line was, quote, the best player I ever played with, unquote. Now, Tony Romo played with some pretty good players. I mean, I think of Des Bryant, Zeke Elliott, uh, Terrell Owens. That one hurts me. Terrell Owens, DeMarcus Ware. Yet he singled out Jason Witten. You cover that team. Why? Well, they were the best of friends dating back to 2003 when they were both rookies. They rode the shuttle bus from the airport over to Valley Ranch for that first mini camp together. They played a lot that first preseason together. Neither one penciled as a starter, so they, there was a lot of snaps in August between two of them. When Romo finally moved into the starting lineup, he became meal, uh, Witten's meal ticket. I mean, he was the most trusted set of hands Romo had, so we went to Witten time and time and time again over the years. And this is a friendship that goes back 15 years. Maybe not the best player, but certainly the best friend he's ever had with the Cowboys. Oh, okay, so we know where Tony Romo thinks, Goose. Who do you think was the best player that Tony Romo played with? Oh, you got to put DeMarcus Ware up there. He ranks eighth all-time in sacks, played an impact position at edge pass rusher, you know, tied in as a support position on most teams and in most offenses. I think on a weekly basis, opponents of the Cowboys are more concerned with the pass rushes to Marcus Ware than the pass catching of Jason Witten. Do you think he winds up in the Hall of Fame? I'm talking about DeMarcus Ware. DeMarcus Ware? Eighth yeah. all-time in sacks? <laughs> He's got more than Jason Taylor. He's a first ballot guy. Was that you a had yes to say wrong? that, didn't you, Gooseman? You had to say that. <laughs> was, that a, was that a yes? <laughs> that would be a yes. I will he's, translate. Got one way, he's got one more ring than Jason Taylor has. Yeah, that was a shocker. That was a shocker. Yeah. Um, you I know, go it's lay down. Well, it's funny because <laughs> when Mike Chappell was talking about Dwight Freeney, and, um, you know, talking about first ballot, I don't think he'd be first ballot and that sort of thing, and no, maybe he'll be in the, here and there. And I said, to myself, geez, wait a minute, Jason Taylor was first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, I think anything's possible. I think Jason Taylor belongs at some point, but he's talking about how long it took Kevin Green. It took Jason Taylor one year. That's what I don't get. You know, yeah. it took Kevin Green 12 shots at eligibility, and Jason Taylor, anyway. Um, as we mentioned, um, I, I think at least that Jason Witten is headed for Canton someday. I think Goose does as well. Well, maybe not so much, but... Um, Jason Witten's not the only one in his class. Um, I don't know if you guys have taken a look at the class of 2023 that Jason Witten would be part of, but already it's it's really stocked with uh, blue ribbon talent. Um, and because we're a Hall of Fame show, I think it's probably never too early to take a look at what's ahead. And what's ahead, guys, um, try Joe Thomas, Jason Witten, Dwight Freeney, James Harrison. Uh, and that's just for starters. And, and, if, and if nobody signs him, you can add Antonio Gates to that list. So, Goose, uh, I, I want to start with you here. Let's assume that Antonio Gates is included, that he doesn't play another down, that he is included in that list. How are you stacking this group? 
Put the queue on hold. Five first band of Hall of Famers. Everybody's <laughs> here. Exactly. I, I, Everybody else sit down. I, I'd probably stack them. Thomas, Freeney, Witten slash Gates, and Harrison. Interesting. Uh, well, to me, if you're going on dominance, uh, which is what it's supposed to be about, it, it's Thomas to be first, Gates next, Harrison, Witten, and Freeney. And I know Freeney has big sack numbers, and that excites some people. Yeah, right. uh, but you know what? I saw him play in many big games, and he seldom made an impact. Plus, you could uh, run all day over him, all day long. Now, one-trick ponies may belong in the Hall of Fame, but to me, they have to stay out in the barn for a while before they get inside. <laughs> Well, you know, Ron, the interesting thing about him is that he's seven tied for 17th yeah. for the Hall of Fame. And, and everyone above him who's eligible, with the exception of uh, Leslie O'Neill, everyone above him who's eligible for the Hall of Fame, they're in. Yeah. But but the nine guys below him who are eligible are not in. So he's right on the cusp. Right. He's the Mendoza line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Mendoza line of Zachers. Uh Yeah, I mean, it's just, look, most defensive coaches – will tell you how uh, relatively unimportant the stack the, the the sack number is it's more about disruptions and mm-hmm. uh, because how many times have we all seen it where I get the sack because you and goose chase the guy right into me and I'm completely blocked out of the play but the guy runs into me and we both fall down and I jump up and do the hoochie coochie uh, you know that's that's just uh, how it is so good player uh, I'm sure eventually we'll probably get in the Hall of Fame uh, but cool your jets on. How quickly he has to get there. Well, who if, who if, this? If, if the sex if the sack numbers don't matter, how is Jason Taylor a first ballot Hall of Famer? Yeah, he's yeah. not. If, Will you not. stop saying that? Now, and I'm I'm getting physically ill at the thought of this. <laughs> your guy, and I like Tom the, Brady. Tom Brady. I know he did. Come on, your guy. I know he did. He was probably wearing that jacket when he wrote the letter. <laughs> <laughs> so, who of this group is going to be jumping down doing the hoochie coochie here, Ron? Uh, who is first ballot? Who is, 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 is it Thomas? I mean, is Thomas, Thomas, Thomas first ballot worth? Yeah, okay. To, to me, it's Thomas. And, uh, you know, Gates, you could make a case for, although I think all those numbers, of passing numbers, have become phony. Uh, and I think you can actually make a pretty hard case for a guy who's been who was defensive player of the year. It made one of the great plays in Super Bowl history, James Harrison. But that won't happen because they'll look at his numbers and say, "Well, he couldn't be very good." And right. you know, I haven't seen any ESPN video of him in a few years, so I don't remember him. <laughs> Thomas Perry paragraph. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Agreed. I, I mean, I know that Hall of Fame voters love those left tackles, and and we waste really no time putting them in. We. We had Walter Jones and Jonathan Ogden going in their first years, Orlando Pace and Willie Rofe in their second, and Goose. That's all in the past six years. Yeah, that's where the game's won or lost. Protect the quarterback or sack the quarterback. Left tackles, pass rushers. So it's players at those positions are looked upon more favorably than those who play tight end or safety or guard or you know, even even one receiver. Right. Yeah. Or, right t- or right tackle. Or right tackle. Or right tackle, right. especially right yeah. tackle. Yeah. Well, you know what I find interesting here is that uh, we always talk about this on here, um, is that championship games matter, and I think they do, and, and uh, especially with quarterbacks and, and coaches. But voters sometimes hold a lack of championships against a candidate. But in the case of Joe Thomas, guys, I, I think sort of ironically it could help him because, Goose, I think people look at him and say, geez, this guy played at an elite team, at an elite level, I'm sorry, at an elite level. For a stinker of a football team, I mean, they stunk, but he did. He kept going on, and on. he didn't mess snaps. And and I think that's pretty. I think it's pretty special. 
Well, we all know it, it's tough to pin a decade of championship drought on a left tackle. I think championships mean more to offensive skill players and pass rushers in the selection process. So the, the players, the candidates whose production can have a direct impact on a game's result. You know, Willie Rolfe never won a title. Walter Jones never won a title. And yet both those players were among the strongest candidates in their Hall of Fame slates. Got, got quick busts. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I've never thought it's fair to hold a, a bad owner, a blind GM, uh, a ludicrous coach, and uh, uh, you know, inaccurate. We, we all the above Cleveland. In Cleveland, all the above. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, against a guy, you know. I mean, that's the same uh, thing that I always felt, and you guys heard me at the time. Was true with Andre Tippett. You know, uh, don't blame him, and don't blame Joe Thomas for the sins of all the nitwits around him. If, if everybody did their job as good as Joe Thomas had done his, they'd have a very big ring collection in Cleveland. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, Ron, you know the Hall also loves edge pass rushers. We've talked mm-hmm. about Dwight Freeney here. Um, it took Kevin Green, as we said, 12 years of eligibility before he made it. Of course, it took Jason Taylor one year of eligibility before he leads it. Yeah. So um, how long does it take Dwight Freeney? How long do you think it takes? He said somewhere in between. Well, as you guys can probably tell, if it was uh, 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 for me, to quote one of my friends, forever. I mean, you know, I, I just... Uh, I saw him play too many games where you didn't even know he was there when they were big, big games. And he wasn't the only pass rusher they had, so you could just concentrate all your efforts on him. Robin Mathis mm-hmm. was just as dangerous, maybe more so, than, than Dwight Freeney. And I'm telling you, the guy was not a factor. And if you're not a factor in the biggest games, then what are you? You're the Hall of Very Good, Mr. October. Wow. And I like I October. Say, Don't get me wrong. One of I my didn't hear him say that to Mike Chappell. <laughs> Yeah, that, that come back to Mike Chappell. Well, guy anyway, works for two move. TV stations. I love Mike Chappell. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to another edge rusher, and that's Harrison. And you mentioned, uh, you know, he, he was a terrific player, but he only had 84 and a half career sacks, and that ties for 53rd. But he was also a defensive player of the year, two-time Super Bowl champion. As you mentioned, Ron had one of the greatest defensive plays in Super Bowl history. But Goose, why do I have a feeling he's going to be the subject one day of a state your case segment? I don't think he's getting in. Because an outside linebacker in a 3-4 scheme is judged solely on his sacks. You need a hunter to get in the discussion, and he comes up short. Leslie O'Neill, Simeon Rice, Clyde Simmons, Neil Smith, Harvey Martin are all members of the Hunter Sack Club, and none has been able to get in the for discussion. The edge rusher needs sacks, and Harrison doesn't have enough. Well, you know, that that's probably true. Well, it is true. Uh, but I think if you look at the teams he played on, the way they played uh, defense, uh, you know, that wasn't his sole or major job. He wasn't like Derek Thomas, you know, just go out there and chase a quarterback and forget the rest of the game. Uh, you know, and I, and I think there's a number of guys who got those kind of sack numbers by only playing a portion of defensive football, and James Harrison was not one of those guys. Uh, mm. You know, uh, but, but I agree with you. I think people are going to look at the numbers, and time will pass, and they'll say, geez, you know, who was that guy? Uh, you know, he also had a bit of a checkered, uh, uh, history because of some of the hits that he laid on people. Personally, I kind of yeah. liked most of them, but uh, some people didn't, and uh, that'll probably hurt him too. Ron, we have less than a minute left here, but it sounds to me like you like James Harrison more than you like Dwight Freeney. I do. I do. If I was starting a team, I would take him before I would take Dwight Freeney. No question. You would? Yes. Okay. Um, hey, hey, Goose, quick question here. I like my defensive um, players standing up, not laying down. Just, you know, in the big moments. <laughs> Quick question. We've got Devin Hester and Nick Mangold retiring, but they didn't play last season, so technically they're in the class of 2022. How do you like their chances one day of making it to Canton? 
special teamers. We all know the deal there. They're all long shots. And if Nick Mangold standing in the queue behind Kevin Mawa, you better get down his knees and pray that Kevin Mawa gets in soon. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have plenty of time to make up our minds of all these, but we have a little time left in the segment, so guys, we're going to break. When we return, it's a two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, it seems like everyone's a whistleblower these days, so Robert, find us one, can you? That's the two-minute warning. There you go. That means one of the two-minute drills, so let's get started. Hugh Jackson says Todd Haley has, quote, total autonomy over the Browns' offense. Good thing or bad? Good thing. He's the only coach I trust in that building. I would say that depends on how loud you like to have your assistant coaches yelling at each other in the meeting room. Who starts first? Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, or Josh Allen? Rosen. All four will start on the bench, but Sam Bradford has the best chance of getting hurt early in Arizona. Josh Allen. You really think the Bills are going to start A.J. McCarron? Carson Wentz says he'll be ready for week one. And you say? Young joints heal quickly, especially when you have a Super Bowl MVP behind you on the depth chart. No, no, no. No need to come back in the nick of time. We got Nick Foles. <laughs> what are the chances Minnesota rookie Hercules Mata'afa lives up to his name? Very good. I like that signing. Was shocked he wasn't drafted. Good player. Well, as you know, Clark, Mata'afa is a Samoan for high chief. Tough title to live up to. I did know that. Former NFL COO Todd Lewicki just offered defensive commissioner Roger Goodell, and after Lewicki was fired, why? He loves that golden parachute Goodell gave him. <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, the full severance check has yet to clear. Why is Seattle's Earl Thomas skipping off-season workouts? As Toby Keith saying, I should have been a cowboy. <laughs> no, because they are voluntary, which means you ain't skipping nothing. Howard Stern was furious after HBO edited his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame intro of John Bon Jovi. What happens if the NFL Network edits T.O. or Randy Moss? We'll all get out of combat and stay in this August about 90 minutes earlier. <laughs> Somebody will be doing sit-ups in front of the Hall of Bus without their shirt on. Who wins a 100-yard dash? Tom Brady, Orlando Brown, or Lava from Hawaii's Kilauea Volcano? I'm betting Mother Nature on this one. Exactly. Lava is hot. Those two are not. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Nick Canepa, Mike Chappell, and Jameson Hensley for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.